RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. I'm reading from a newsroom.co.nz story published on the 6th. A new legal current restores Māori rights for river mouths. One court ruled out customary rights for Māori over their river mouths if the waterways were navigable, but a higher court has reversed that for up to one kilometre up rivers from the coast. Why do I mention that? Well, uh, it seems that uh, there are growing restrictions to accessing conservation land, including justification also using predator-free 2050 and that recent court win for Maori controlling beaches and rivers. So I thought I'd get Jaspreet Boparai from our Greenwash program to join us to talk about the bigger picture of this. Jaspreet, thanks for coming on. Hey, Paul. Is this a New Zealand-only... I mean, we're seeing our version of it here, but this this sort of slow creep of restricting, constraining access, well, what do you call it, conservation land or just land? Yeah, yeah. Um, is that is this a lockstep thing again? 100%, Paul. I, really? Absolutely no doubts about it. In recent weeks, Don Nicholson, my co-host on Greenwashed, and I have spoken to Julian Romanello from Tulsa, and we've spoken to Margaret Byfield from the American Stewards of Liberty. We saw both of these ladies on the No Farmers, No Food uh, movie by Epoch Times. And this is nothing new. In fact, uh, speaking to Margaret Byfield from the American Stewards of Liberty, her dad faced this in the early 70s when she was 10. A 24-year court battle ensued, and that's what got her on. This is not a New Zealand phenomenon alone. Are there sort of key words that kind of pop up in in this that, again, are like global? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the warm, fuzzy words from Agenda 21 are usually words of conservation, environment, sanctuary, habitat conservation plan, invasive species, and all of those. We, we've seen this everywhere. Yeah. So what's going on? What, what's the what's the MO? What, how these, you know, how's the sort of uh, the creep put into action? If I put it really simply, this is an attack on private property rights. And oh, when that happens, yeah. it ultimately leads to, you know, the WEF's uh, utopia of uh, we'll own nothing, be happy, because... Every time something like this happens, say suddenly there is some bit of your land, and this is no different from zoning, you know. Right now we are seeing zoning being enforced via a whole lot of creative ideas. Suddenly there is social justice. They are talking of uh, having a mixed social classes in a neighborhood, and we see certain groups in an outrage upon where our social housing is going. This is, this is no different from that. Only thing is this is in a conservation context. But we've seen cases in the U.S. where one unknown previously, probably previously unseen invertebrate under a rock can overnight turn your whole farm into a conservation area. This is exactly radical environmentalism at its best. And that's where, you, that's where the, the grab for property rights description that you just get, that's where that comes in because... It's so easy to do, isn't it? It you is find, so easy you to find that creepy crawly. Hey, hey, hey! Look what we've found, and oh, we we have to protect this. Sorry, Mister or Mrs. Farmer. Hmm. Um. Yeah. But, but only 
If this was used uniformly, Paul, now a couple of years ago now almost, one forgets how long this COVID saga has been going on. Could be three. But uh, our rarest native fish, colloquially called the lowland longjaw, <laughs> the river mouth in South Island where its only known habitat was, there were locals there, farmers, who were saying that, please, we need to protect this area. And yet the farm close close to where this fish was found Hazel Dean at 2,600 hectares almost went to pine forestry without anything else. So, you know, they can call farmers, environmental vandals, whatever they choose. But the point is, we don't apply this uniformly. It it almost seems to be plucked out when needed. But otherwise, if it's something like, you know, decimating good prime pastoral land for pine forestry, it's thrown to the winds. Who are the useful idiots? Who are the useful idiots? Most of us, I think many of us who buy into this divide and rule and allow ourselves to get distracted while the agenda continues unstopped. We we all are useful idiots because at the end of it, who will be allowed to access this? It won't be by race alone. It will be the elite and the elite across all races. Then it doesn't come to, you know, racism alone. But for now, it's a very, very handy tool to put people into these little boxes, label them, and shut them up. Yeah, because not only is there that story that I just mentioned, but also um, there's a proposal to transfer most of Auckland's 28 regional parks from Auckland Council to a possible new co-governance body. And that co-governance body is now, you know, it's, it's moved on, the Haraki Gulf Forum. And now when they passed a bill for that, wanting it uh, to extend the conservation area further on. There are clauses within that of customary rights. Now, yet again, for me, the question comes, if it was about environment alone, then the environment is colorblind, isn't it? Yeah, no one gets access, right? No one. Mm -hmm. We saw this in the whole Bakaramona Fiasco, you know, first they closed the park, talk closed certain routes during COVID. I mean, how much more socially distanced can you get than remote Bakaramona and its walking tracks? My husband and I have been there. God, he couldn't get any range. The road was non-existent. I'm talking 10 years ago. Yeah. They closed that. Then they shut it down. Then they burnt certain huts, hunting lodges and saying that, you know, it's going to be a refreshed, to brand new huts and all coming. We can see that. When this happens, it then the race doesn't come into the picture. Yeah, um, I think uh, to Uruwera uh, situation regards that um, it was overturned in the end, and and they had to stop pulling huts down. Uh, I think uh, Doc were going through to Uruwera. I think a fire set. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but um, but but that turned around. So, okay, so the end goal is to grab property. Is that the end goal of this? It is. It is to constrain your rights because when we, any of us, when we buy a bit of land, be it farmland or be it even someone who's got a single unit, you know, independent house and who suddenly has to reckon with a five-story or a 10-story coming up right next door, you you expect to be able to enjoy that in relative, you know, peace and quiet. Yeah, you pay the money for it. Yeah, yeah. Many people paid for the view. You might pay it for just a suburb you want to be in. Or, hey, even, you know, 
the class of society you want to live in, the sort of school zone you want to go to, all of those, there's a premium attached to all of those. And suddenly when you have, say, many of these dwellings that are coming in that uh, Kianga Ora is putting in and people are not being listened to and there's high density coming in right next door, what what happens? There, there's going to be some sort of uh, chaos on the streets. And we are seeing that time after time and city after city that's happening. In fact, uh, that uh, story that we started with, and that is the um, navigable distance up uh, river mouths from the coast. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that inevitably, because that, that then creates a, a, a race tension issue. And they're deliberately creating that. Be it and the it the doesn't new... need to be there. It's so unnecessary. It's no. I mean, what's wrong with anyone just popping up the mouth of a river and feeling free to do that? I mean, I have uh, gone through meetings here recently in Southland about the farm freshwater plants that are coming in and the area I live in. It's the first kid off the block uh, in terms of these freshwater plants, uh, along with Waikato. So they went live here on the first of August this year. Now in our they say farm freshwater plants are for, you know, managing our waterways, nitrates and so on. But along when you're doing your plans, you're supposed to get a copy and you can get it from your local uh, TA, Territorial Authority, because they have the cultural areas mapped. And you have to include those. And there's a reference to the Treaty of Atangi. There's a reference to areas of cultural significance. And there's a whole lot of data being mined along with this whole race issue. And, you know, a friend of mine had gone along and she spoke. She says, uh, my family have been farming this bit of land for 103 years. Now, where is my area of, uh, you know, cultural significance here? But yeah. that's what we're dealing with. But that's just a tool to mm. get to an end goal, right? Completely. Completely. That's, that's just a tool. Uh, you know, we have conservationists across the world asking for 30 by 30. That is 30% of land into conservation by 2030. No one talks about the price of that. That's a huge amount of land. I know. And and that's in seven years or less. Come on. But yet they they are doing it. They are pushing that. And, you know, we are being pulled again into a compliance regime that, again, and my bias is probably showing by now, Paul, I'm a farmer. New Zealand farmers have been subsidy free since the early 1980s and after and that that caused a lot of chaos then but at least they were had to stand up on their own two feet now we are again being pulled into a regime here they're talking of biodiversity credits what are those your if you don't have uh, you know areas dedicated to certain bits of conservation which most sensible farmers will do there's there's, there's the odd bad fish everywhere but they're not talking about biodiversity credits and how many hundreds of billions of dollars that's worth. They're going to be pushing us back into what the EU does. You know, plant a woodlot, get this much. Switzerland, where farmers earn more for biodiversity than for the actual product. Okay. Nonsense. We're back there where we started from. Can we believe what we're told? Because, again, in the Hauraki Gulf situation, mm. um, people are saying that the fishery is about to collapse. I mean, how do they know that? And what does success look like? So what will it be? You you see Rahul yeah, yeah. after Rahul. What's not collapsing? How do you know what n- not collapsing is? Exactly. How do you know what will success look like? And 
for me, what is the cost of all of these measures? Because if in this country, due to the postcode lottery, you have people unable to access cancer treatments, you have people flying across the ditch for regular breast cancer drugs, which are not available here. So there's a price attached to everything. There's a price for human life. What is the price of all of these? And are we as a country in a position to be able to afford them? For farmers at some point, because I know, you know, things things are, are rough for farmers, many farmers, particularly farmers who have come in in more recent times and borrowed mm. big, you know, uh, they're paying <laughs> interest like they never thought they'd be paying. Mm. And it all adds up. You know about that. Mm. But at some point, surely the farming community is going to say, hey, hang on here. No more. One, one, one lives in hope, uh, Paul. But the other day, I was sitting through a webinar, uh, a recorded webinar uh, from the Sustainable Finance uh, Forum. And this was a group uh, facilitated by, you know, all these conservation movements and climate hysteria. But it had five banks as panelists. And one after the other, each of them started coming along and talking about what they are doing, how they are pushing farmers for the green loans, how they will have to start looking at their portfolios to see whether they meet the criteria set for the banks by the United Nations convened Net Zero Banking Alliance. So what does that mean? You are going to have to look at your books and see, do we fund this? Do we not fund this? Because there's not, not based on its productive uh, potential and, and, and how that business could operate, but on other things that aren't part of the business. Don't, don't get me wrong, Paul. There are farmers who are bad operators. There are this, just like in any other profession. I will never hold up farming on an altar. It's how, what's the scale of that, though, Jaspri? What's the scale of that? Probably no more than any other industry, uh, Paul. But farming, as Don has often said, goes as, there's no other profession that goes naked in public as often as farming does. You yeah. know, you're held to public trial. You yeah. are hung and quartered as much as possible. And uh, that's that's been always been my question here, that what defines too much? We've had in Southland, we've had a map presented to the Environment Court by Environment Southland that shows that 100% of Southland waterways are degraded, right? The entire Southland fjordland area is in pink. Now, what is point of source? They have just said, this waterway is degraded. So everyone that lives around that, you are all guilty until proven innocent. They no longer go after, you know, point of source. Where was that contamination from? No, all of you do something. And we are being ushered into this regime by consultants, by our own levy-funded bodies, by catchment groups, discussion groups, and so on. And a reckoning is coming. It, it ain't very far. Yeah. Um, how far? <laughs> not, not very far. I mean, in on the Sustainable Finance Forum I mentioned, I listened to James Patterson. He's the head of sustainable finance at ASB. He started talking, and I made some notes. He's saying, he says, farming needs to move beyond greenhouse gas emissions alone. Farmers need to start looking at workplace diversity, social factors. What does that mean? What does workplace diversity mean? Your guess is as good as mine. I thought I'm pretty diverse, and that just happens by itself. But work conditions, 
modern slavery factors. We need to go beyond business as usual and fit in with global targets and the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. I mean, this is a direct quote. These are notes as I made and modern slavery regulations. And there is there is no end to this nonsense. Auckland University. What, what does modern slavery mean in New Zealand terms? I, I just don't get it. Well, you should ask the Auckland University that's now set up a center on uh, modern slavery research in, you know, supply chains. I could actually do it, do their work for them. I've looked at the Ministry of Business uh, Innovation, MBI website, and they have a list of employers stood down. Nearly all of those employers stood down for poor labor practices are migrants once upon a time, because those names are very familiar from the parts where I come from. So as far as I'm concerned, it's often erstwhile migrants exploiting fresh ones, or possibly sometimes they might have even, you know, done a deal. I need my residence here. I have a girlfriend here. I need to get this visa yeah, or yeah. so on. And But here we have a group of professors who have found a means for funding. And are they going to milk it for all they're worth? Is it all about the money, Jaspreet? I'm so cynical these days. I, I think people are really quite greedy. And if they can get easy money and also feel virtuous at the same time or transmit a virtue so people it sort of disguises their greed um do you think that that's driving it or are these earnest people who really believe everything they're hearing even though that example you gave of just everyone's guilty of polluting you know mm. without any a, any detail any resolution of of informational research i mean i don't know how you can get away with that you know but i mean i look at the, what will happen around Christmas, the shopping frenzy and all of that. And, and, and I look at the sustainability in it. I look at Facebook influencers uh, parading their, you know, latest Kmart hauls. And this is only for $5 and $7 and 15 bucks for a pair of boots. And I wonder who got paid how much? Where's the modern slavery there? Yeah, yeah. Did you ever stop to think that if you're you getting a pair of... those imports, right? We shouldn't be having anything to do with it. I mean, people buy stuff from AliExpress, Timo, and don't get me wrong, you want to buy them, go fill your boots. Yeah, yeah. But don't yeah. talk to me about sustainability then. If something can be delivered to New Zealand, a pair of shoes for $15 delivered, I my rural post for the smallest size pack is $12.50. If I include the rural surcharge, Paul, what are we talking about here? Well, if you're a bunch of professors and you've got together and you realize you can scam someone out of a whole lot of money to do research that in the average sort of Kiwi context, let's say, doesn't really apply. There is no, there's no there there. Of course you're going to take the money. You'll, you'll, <laughs> you'll secure a position and you'll, you'll, then you can virtuously say you're doing God's work, you know? I wish they would do some research and, you know, give us uh, some quantitative data on waiting time in hospitals on people missing treatments, on waiting lists for knee replacements and the like. I wish, I seriously wish they would do something like that. I wish they would do research on suicides, especially rural suicides at that. Yeah, then we'd be talking. Right now, this is virtue signaling while they're sitting in the ivory towers. And uh, environment, it is it is so easy to manipulate people, Paul, there. Well, it's like climate, right, Jaspreet? You can, mm -hmm. you can assign anything to climate. Anything. You want clean do you want clean water? It's an open ended question. Yeah. Yes. Of course I want clean water. Yeah. yeah. But when I look at the UN website, it says uh, nearly hundred percent of New Zealand has access to clean water. So what are we talking about? You know, we are a country where 
one issue, one contamination at a council's uh, reservoir in uh, Hawke's Bay turned into the Three Waters fiasco. Yeah, because it was it was sort of um, leveraged up. Mm-hmm. And then you got co-governance added and all of those treaties added. And then it was better off funding and all of this. And before you realize it, you wonder, if you go back and think, what happened? There wasn't a whole lot. It was an issue at a council's reservoir. It should have been fixed. Blame should have been assigned. Some heads should have rolled. But now we went through this massive bureaucracy. And yeah, here we are. Are the bureaucracy, well, there's, you know, different bureaucracies around the place, but, you know, as a sort of entity, are they all in? Are they all in on this? They usually are, but more than anything, Paul, it's it's in New Zealand, it's the non-governmental organizations, the NGOs that I feel are extremely powerful and just too many to count. There's one around every corner. I was looking but at Isn't them. that the system for weaponizing the... Okay, for, for it's the front, right? Your mm. NGOs are the front here. You can fund them and you don't have to... Um, it doesn't sheet back to anything that's sort of like government. Mm, yeah. So, so so they're the ones, the foot soldiers that go out, the advanced parties and sort of... Yeah, your, your WWF, uh, your Forest and Bird, all of these organizations. But, I mean, these are just two. Looking up at Statistics New Zealand website, we have, for a country this size, we have over 100,000 NGOs. What? It said, uh, I think, 170,000. And this is a couple of years old data. That's... Got... Ooh, wow. <laughs> if, if you put it in terms of people, there is uh, more than one for every, uh, what, 50 people? And presumably all of them are, have got some kind of funding stream. Yeah. Yeah. Presumably all of them. No wonder have. we're broke. We, we've got these. We've got influencers that we have bought in via the Ed Hillary Foundation. So we, along with Australia and the United Kingdom, all three of us, around the same time, we began something called as a global talent visa. I think UK called it the global impact visa, generally, these visas. And looking at the Ed Hillary Foundation's website, I can actually filter the fellows that have come in, the 500 out of them, by the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal. Goal number one, how many have come in? So around 500 plus, just over 500 have come in through that visa. Uh, just over 100 of them came in via the climate SDG 13. Oh. So you have big movers and shakers who have come into this country now pushing this. Uh, oh, gee. Because I've often thought, you know, looking at my Didn't know that. Yeah, looking at migration and people coming in, and it, it's far easier if you have people who come in, and I, I speak this as a migrant, who don't have a sense of history of the place. When you don't have a sense of history, your roots are elsewhere. I often think, how how well can you do justice or right by the place, you know, that, that feeds you, that, that you live on? I I highly doubt it. I really, I truly doubt it. And well, that's I, the advantage, the, though, that you aren't connected. So you can yeah. come in and just, you don't yeah, have I, any, any connection have a, or, or emotion or, or, or any cultural sense. You just, it's just not there. So it's not relevant. Yeah. Yeah. And we've seen the United Nations, you know, your international peacekeeping forces, you people from India head up to 
Bosnia Herzegovina, Africa, and all of those. And the whole thing is, is it helps that you don't have roots there. You go in, you do a job, and you get out. And I, I look at these these global talent visas, these people who've come in, all with the same same lens there. Well, there's 102 of those fellows who have come in on the Ed Hillary Foundation via SDG 30. I don't think Ed Hillary ever had this in mind. No, no, I, I wouldn't think so. I would like not to think so because I, I don't think it's so. it's a convenient name to go behind. I mean, he was a global guy, and you know, he was plugged into other cultures. Yeah, but but I don't think. Um, uh, um, what about the the change of government, Jaspreet? Do you see any anything there that hmm. I don't know, um, a handbrake or or something the, on this? The, You'll have to make some noises, at least, wouldn't they, Paul? I am just as cynical as you are, but they would have to make some sort of noises. So if uh, one of them says we need to you know, reduce stock numbers by this much, the other might say, no, we'll actually give you some technologies to reduce methane. But neither of them will address the science Do we of need the to even bloody reduce it? This is the thing. Why go through a, a, some kind of weird, mm. you know, um, performance sort of art? Yep. Yeah. But that's that's what it is. We have been, I think, taken off our hands of the wheel for far too long, and it's a rocky yeah. road back. Yeah, that's a, some turbulence there, but it's coming. The reckoning's coming. You you said that we got we got you on tape saying that. Oh, absolutely, and I stand by that. And I would love to be wrong, but the reckoning is coming. There is yeah. there's no escaping what's coming. Because in the end, people can just say, "Nah, sorry, no more." Yeah. Because it's at scale, there's no way of enforcing this. No, no there is, there's really no way of enforcing un- without this network of NGOs, these influencers, because the center government elections, Paul, I've always looked at them as a change of guard. Nothing yeah. uh, of much substance really truly changes. Just the new shift comes in, right? Mm. Yeah. Just new package, but otherwise the same yeah. old, same old. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anything more we need to um, talk about here? NGOs. I, I think we need to keep a very, very close eye on the non-governmental operators, some of the bigger consulting firms that work across the world. And here I'm talking, you know, organizations like Becca, WSP, Oricon and others, because I recently had a ratepayer write to me that, you know, I, we can't see anything about 20-minute cities and there's nothing in the council. And I said to direct them, I said, yeah, you will probably never find them if you start looking for them in, you know, your center government documents. I mean, you will never find a bill from the parliament passed saying that we are now going to implement 15-minute or 20-minute cities. Yet, if you go and look at one of our biggest consultants, WSP, who have partnered with the Helen Clark Foundation. Three uh, documents on the main page talking about pioneering the 20-minute city in Aotearoa. Here we you go. go. You go look at Becker. You go look at the big four, Deloitte, McKinsey, and all of these. Deloitte, uh, you would think it's an accounting firm, but on their website, the 15-minute city in New Zealand. We need to stop looking at your centre and local governments and looking more at these non-government operators, the you know, crony capitalists, and see what they're saying, see and if what it's and if it's diverging from their normal mission. Yeah, yeah, completely. They're meddling in everything, and the government just seems to be, you know, 
just sort of holding forth, letting all of these guys run amok. Well, that's um, the the other thing is the revolving door, isn't it? So you don't want to do yourself out of a potential job after you finished in that particular role, and one of those firms might pick you up. So you never want to jeopardize that, do you? No, you never want to stop a gravy train as long as uh, you you can avoid it. Yeah. Um, speaking of consultancies, I'm looking at a story here that RNZ broke, actually. Wellington Consultancy, Senate SHJ, have been working in the physical offices of the Commerce Commission with Commerce Commission email addresses and devices. The senior staffer in that firm charging himself out to the Commerce Commission at 420 an hour. I, I, They're I, in the office. They're sitting in the office. I, I didn't read that one, Paul, but nothing will surprise me. This is this is powerful, the course there. You know, things... I don't know how one is supposed to manage conflicts of interest here. In my role, I am supposed to declare everything, you know, anything over 50 bucks, even a meal provided somewhere if someone shouts me something and I, I, I'd be the sort of person to just declare everything. But what about all of this that's going on? How cozy is this? Well, they are a PR consultancy, and um, but uh, Commerce Commission, just using this as an example, mm. um, already have 16 comm staff. <laughs> so you can sort of kind of see how the roundabout works. Yeah, you you can see how the roundabout works. and But uh, I at one time I used to say that, you know, uh, your ETS and all of this, but right now conservationism and all of this, there's, there's no bigger job scheme than this, what's going on, be it between different organizations, like, you know, even Doc is doing Predator Free 2050 and all of those aided by these influences coming from overseas. There's going to be some very interesting times ahead. And I wouldn't be surprised when Kiwis find themselves unable to access vast swaths of their own countryside or be even be needing to pay for some of those privileges, what things we once took for granted. We just didn't Pre- hear. Predator 2050 has $10 million doled out recently. We talked to a guy, I don't know if you heard that, but we talked to a guy who designed a possum trap, mm-hmm. a really clever one that trains, mm-hmm. and not just possums, rats, mm-hmm. all the pests, trains them to actually come and poison themselves. It's a brilliant idea. And it can be left there, and uh, for a month or so, you come back and there are, you know, 30, 40 dead pests around it. And given that um, in the forests, according to this guy who's been in the forest for 40 years, there's usually around one possum per square kilometre. So it's easily done this way. He's been pitching it to the entity that's picked up the Predator 2050 funding, mm. they're not interested because no. they want to drop 1080. They want to poison the place. Yet, and it turns out, actually, he said that it's not because they, they thought it was a good idea, but it was the way he communicated the idea. All of this, the amount of money that being spent, and, you know, they, they have one plan, and it's they keep talking about innovation, and, you know, thinking outside the box, we we seem to have this one-stop shop of 1080. We had last year, when we had MPI talking about uh, wallaby control, they spent $2.76 million in the Otago region and on killing wallabies, pest control. How do they do and, it? 
And, and so that, what did that 2.76 million get you? It got you 26,000 hours of work and killed 18 wallabies. That's $150,000 per wallaby. 18 wallabies. You're kidding me, man. I'm nearly falling off a chair. Yeah. Yep. So I think it was the taxpayers union uh, that exposed this. But, you know, where is the bang for a buck here? They, of course, they defended it saying that, you know, this is an area where, unlike Canterbury, with this huge numbers, they are more of surveillance and just controlling whatever little is left. But So why spend why spend all that money on an area that hardly has any wallabies? Because they had $1.2 billion to spend on the Jobs for Nature scheme when COVID came along. So, you know, you've got a slush fund. You've got to use it up. Oh, man. So, I wish you hadn't told me that. <laughs> <laughs> but this, where is the value for money? Where is the value for human life? Where is the value for the ratepayers who are funding all of this and yet can't get the very basic necessities of life? Education, quality education, quality 2,800 leaking pipes in Wellington City. Ooh. Well, let's get Wellington moving then, shall we? <laughs> $7.5 billion. Get the cars out. I mean, yeah, that's, but that's, that's what, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the real problem right there. But okay. All right. Well, um, hmm. Um, I'm looking forward to that reckoning. Looking forward to that. Uh, Bring it on. Well, you know, you've, you've got, you've got to cross that because uh, until the pain gets personal, a whole lot don't really see the writing on the wall. Well, when I'm thinking reckoning, I'm thinking just not complying is what I'm thinking. Mm. We just say, okay, you've gone beyond reason. Add it off. We, we, we can't do this anymore. And mm. you can jump up and threaten stuff and go crazy. Sorry, over yeah. it. And what gets to me is when you have, you know, the whole pressure coming from endless regulations and then they throw you peanuts like, hey, here's a, you know, we're going to have some talks on mental health. Or out here, there's this program called Surfing for Farmers. And look, we are doing so much for you. Spend giving $15,000 here for you guys to be able to surf once a week. For two I've heard hours about that. In fact, um, I spoke to a um, deputy uh, head of Federated Farmers, and she mentioned that Surfing for Farmers as a mental health kind of thing. No, I, I take a different view of that, Paul. I mean, I haven't listened to your conversation, but I would say farmers are not special. Why would you care for their mental health? Just do the right Lead them to sort what they can by themselves, and they'll be they'll be fine. But the point is, it's like the ones causing the mental stress are the ones then paying lip service to it. That's what gets up my nose. Yeah. All right, Jazz Preet, thank you for coming on and um, and keeping us. What's the word? Enlightened, switched on to all of this. Thanks, Paul. Pleasure. Okay. okay. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.